Welcome to Neuroethics Today, a science and society podcast about emerging ethical and societal implications of neuroscience research and neurotechnology. In this show, we'll interview experts in the fields of neuroscience, neuroethics, and neurotechnologies. We will highlight pressing questions, discuss thought-provoking ideas, and raise awareness on the importance of neuroethics in our daily lives. Keep listening to Get Curious and Critical. Hi everyone, and welcome to the neuro, a new episode of Neuroethics Today. Today with me is Dr. Christian Herf, and he is an assistant professor in the School of Mental Health and Neuroscience at Maastricht University, where he leads the invasive brain-computer interface research line. His research interest lays in the application of machine learning technology to neurophysiological data for brain-computer interfaces and neuroscience research. We will discuss more with uh, uh, Dr. Herf um, about his research, his interests, and what what exactly he does with brain-computer interfaces, of course, touching upon some of the important ethical and societal implications of this emerging technology. Welcome, Christian, if I may, um, and thank you very much for accepting to do this with me. Sure, thanks for the invitation. I'm really looking forward. So, to get a bit of a, of, of a start on, can you, before we really dig into your research um, and your line of research, can you explain to our audience what is brain-computer interface? Sure. So the idea of brain-computer interfaces is to control prosthetics or interact with computers without the need for any muscle movement. This is achieved by just measuring brain signals and then translating them into some sort of output. Okay, and then we, we can talk of also invasive and non-invasive brain-computer interface. Can you tell us a bit about the differences between the two? So. Brain-computer interfaces in general don't care what type of brain activity we're measuring. So we could use all different types of sensors and in non-invasive brain-computer interfaces or BCI we just use sensors that are removable from the head. For example, electroencephalography, where we just put on one of those bathing cups and measure EEG. We could use functional near-infrared spectroscopy using light that uh, also uses sensors fixed to the head. We could also use MRI or fMRI more precisely. All of these are non-invasive. If we use sensors that are implanted into the skull, we're talking about invasive PCIs. And are there different applications for the different types of BCIs? Absolutely. So as you can imagine, the more invasive we get, the higher fidelity the signals get. So I get very broad information when I measure non-invasively and I get more and more localized on a temporal and on a spatial scale if I, um, if I go invasively. So the more precise I want it to be, uh, the more I, I have the need for invasive measures. And why are we developing this technology? What, what, what is the um, intended outcome for, for its use? In science fiction, we usually see that everybody's using a BCI to communicate with each other or to interact with the internet, for example. But this is not what we're currently developing this for. Our absolute main focus is for disabled people. And as BCIs are not working very well yet, 
the, the real focus is for people who lost all ability to move any muscles, because if we still have some residual muscle movement, usually we better make use of that. For example, people in a locked-in state, when they lost all voluntary muscle control through amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, for example, or um, a brainstem stroke, or a very, very high uh, neck injury, uh, these are our uh, target populations. Okay, and and um, so if we want to move more into you know the line of research that you are currently uh, developing and really uh, going more deeper into, can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. So we investigate a, a really large variety of different things in um, in decoding of brain states, but our primary goal is speech neuroprothesis. So the idea here is to reconstruct audio speech or decode speech from brain signals. The target population here again would be people who lost the ability to communicate. As you can imagine, this is super debilitating if you can't mm -hmm. talk to your friends or family anymore. But also the target group is pretty small. I mean, um, diseases where you can't communicate anymore uh, are very, very few because usually this leads to death. Um, B there are BCIs that enable these patients to communicate, but this usually works by spelling out letter by letter. The most well-known one is P300 speller, where people focus on an individual letter, and then they wait until it flashes often enough and are able to spell out an individual letter and type out messages like this. This takes forever and is super annoying because you see all the flashes mm -hmm. all the time. Our idea is to make use of our primary means of communication, speech. So people think about producing speech and then we try to decode that either, either into a textual representation, so writing down, or really creating audio in real time from that. And, and have you been successful or partially successful in, in doing so? Um, we have been partially successful, I wouldn't say completely uh, successful because we have some limitations. But let me first talk about what mm -hmm. we achieved. Um, <coughs> we started with the looking at speech activity in people who were speaking normally. And we could, f a few years back, show that we can decode what people were saying when they spoke normally. We then showed we can also synthesize speech, so recreate audio from the brain data when they were speaking actively. Now, scientifically, this is interesting. For a prosthesis, this is rather useless mm -hmm. because if they're speaking normally, you might as well use that for communication. Yeah, yeah. And so we wanted to tackle imagined speech. So we instructed our participants to speak in their heads. And when we found out that this is super difficult for the participants, and they just can't do it. If you instruct people to imagine to speak, they don't know what to do. <laughs> so we didn't find much activity. And we're talking, this is with um, so they're not patients, right? That group in particular. Um, <coughs> that's a very good point. That's one of our huge uh, limitations. There are patients, but they're not patients for this. Okay, yeah, exactly. So they're not <laughs> locked-in patients, no, for example. No, absolutely not. They're uh, perfectly able to communicate okay. with their voices. Uh, I'll get back to that okay. in a moment. Um, so uh, at some point we decided that imagined speech only works if you provide immediate feedback. So we developed this closed-loop apparatus, basically, that takes the brain activity, decodes it in real time, 
and then gives audio feedback. And this allows the patients to practice. So they can imagine to speak, hear what comes out, and then adjust the way they imagine to speak to get some output. And we were successful in that, and we could show by imagining to speak with our device, we can recreate oh, wow. audio. But, and now this is a huge limitation, our patients are perfectly able to speak. Um, what we do is we piggyback on surgeries for epilepsy. Mm -hmm. in, in super severe cases of epilepsy, when the medication doesn't work, patients get electrodes implanted. And um, they get them to identify where the epilepsy comes from and then to see is this an area or a target for resection. Can we cut out this area to treat the epilepsy? And the process uh, with these um, implanted electrodes usually means they get the electrodes and then stay in hospital for two to three weeks and they just wait to have enough seizures. And when they've had enough seizures, the um, epileptologists can say, aha, this is where the epilepsy comes from. So this is rather boring for the patients. They are just in hospital and wait. So this is usually when we do the experiments with them. Uh, I really like this type of experiments <coughs> because it has no additional burden on them. They would have these uh, electrodes anyway. We don't do any additional step. We just have them participate. They usually like it. Okay, so that's like a win-win situation where they are helping with research and you are able to make use of that particular uh, patient group. And um, so we talked a bit about, um, you know, who this technology is targeted towards and we said, okay, this is for really patients that really, really need it. But I'm sure you're familiar with, um, you know, companies such as Neuralink that are also talking about applying such a technology to um, to everyone, to, to, to patients, but also to non-patients. Um, and, and not only Neuralink, right? I mean, we know even Facebook had uh, uh, plans of introducing a kind of BCI technology to text on the go or to communicate without the need to actually, you know, type out the, 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 the text message. What, what are your th personal and, and, and professional thoughts on that? So... Um when Facebook announced their ideas, um, they even used one of my videos from one of my papers oh, wow. on, the, on the developer conference when they announced this. Um, and since then they've stopped again with mm -hmm. their endeavors and I think there is good reason for this because the technology is just not ready for a general usage yet. So there is no added benefit. Facebook knows so much about all of us if we agree to participate in their services that the additional information they can get through brain data is just neglectable. Mm -hmm. I mean, they know where we are, they know <laughs> what we buy, they know who we're close to, and I don't think there is anything they can get from brain data at this point. Speaking about Neuralink, um, all the motivations they draw, I think they have to be taken with a grain of salt. I don't think this is really what they're aiming for, but what they're pitching is what is needed to sell their product. So they also need investors, and they yeah. also need a hype. So, I mean, half of the stuff, they're, they're promoting all of the brain writing. I mean, we have absolutely no indication that this will work in the foreseeable future. Nobody's even really working on that. So I think what they're trying to do is to generate a, 
generate a hype around their project. And this also includes promising this for non-disabled users. I, I'm not even sure this is what they're really intending to do. Okay. And then do you see any you know, ethical implications with, with, with doing that? Does, can, can that have implications for you know, uh, uh, researchers like you that are actually working on this for patients? I think there can definitely be huge implications and I should think we should be wary, wary about this. Um, and I think there's also ethical implications for patients before we even get to uh, applying this to the general public. So let's imagine we have a speech interface for a disabled person. And all of these speech interfaces work with predictive algorithms about language, so-called language models. So they use statistics of language, which word is likely to follow the next. And we have them now in our Outlook here at the university, or in your mobile phone you have them. And sometimes you see it predicts something that is similar to what you wanted to say, but, but it's not really how you would have formulated. Yeah, right? yeah. So sometimes if we just want to be quick, we accept this. But now imagine this is the only way you can speak. It, it changes who you are. I, if this thing says not, uh, I'm fine, but it says, I'm great. I mean, th this is super similar in meaning, but it's not what you were intending to say. Now, we can just correct it, but if this is your only means of communication, it, it changes who you are. Uh, and of, of course, this is super minor, but uh, it, it shows how this can grow uh, and, and change who the person is mm -hmm. by making decisions for the person. Mm -hmm. And um, this does get more drastic the more uh, widespread the usage is, of course. Yeah, I think there's huge ethical implications. And, and, and for your own work, do you see that companies such as Neuralink you know, kind of exaggerating the potential of a certain technology before it's even out there. Can can that have implications on, you know, the way you do research, maybe even the, the, the you know, it's not only hype for the general public, but also a certain false promise for the patients themselves? Um, I think this is huge risk for us. Um, so I know what's realistic in the field and the other researchers in the field know too, but, but maybe other reviewers and the general public don't. So then I pitch a BCI which is at this current state of technology to funders and then they're super surprised saying, well, what's this? Elon Musk is promising us to upload music in 10 years and you're trying to decode whether someone is speaking. I mean, this is so far remote from what he is promising that what I'm promising or suggesting might sound ridiculous. Yeah. So um, this type of overhyping is, of course, very, very dangerous because we're, we're bound to underperform. <laughs> but it also undermines your work in like a big way. Yes, yes, I totally agree. Um, and, uh, and then very soon people will not be willing to invest or fund research like this because um, of these huge overpromises. And then patients also, I mean, I get contacted by patients a lot or by caregivers of patients and they want something that can read the thoughts of their relative now and I have to say to them, well, we're not very close to this and we're very far away from implanting that into a patient. Yeah.
Yeah, that's that's. Uh, I think that's that's eye-opening, and at the same time, it's it's frustrating because, I mean, you cannot do anything <laughs> about that. Yeah. It's out there. It 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 it, and and the message itself. Even though one might think, okay, this is not real, but as you said, many people don't, you know, dig into what is actually fact and what is actually fiction or. You know, completely out of out of uh, um, um, out of scope for the coming. I don't know, twenty, forty years maybe, but still, the, the the message can have really major implications of how society will see it and how, especially those patient groups, are going to be affected by it. Absolutely, and the, the Elon Musk's uh, audience, of course, is many, many orders of magnitude larger than anything we could ever reach with a, even. No matter how thorough a scientific publication is, they, we will never be even close to this type of audience. Yeah. Are you are you already impressed with what they've uh, what they've done, what what they've produced? I am on some levels. I am very impressed. So the technical engineering of the electrodes and the way to implant these electrodes, I wouldn't say they're the best. So there is a Belgian country, uh, company called iMac who developed the NeuroPixels. Mm -hmm. I think that is a more promising technology. But what his team of engineers have developed, that is amazing tech for electrodes. All of the demonstrations and all the neuroscience they've done with this is very underwhelming. This is what the field has done 15 years ago. Yeah. But the tech, that's great. That's and I cool. think that also has feeded the hype because I think... Uh, uh, society or, or, or the audience that he's been targeting don't really or are not amazed so much by the technique that they've used but more by oh my god look what the monkey is doing <laughs> with, with its brain even though as you say this is something that the field has already shown so, so it's actually pretty preliminary what they, what they tried to show but still this has, this has really taken investors and, and the public really Uh, big time yeah. be because of how, how wonderful or, or how amazing it, 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 it was portrayed um, you know throughout your research you know you've been you've been in the field for how many years now I started my PhD pretty much exactly 10 years ago okay that's 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 a decade into into that line of research um, have you ever come across you know whether in writing or throughout your work about any ethical implications that, you know, BCI, is that something that 10 years ago, when you just got started, was, was, was there a discussion of ethics of BCI? Or is that something that you're seeing now more and more? So the ethics um, of augmented and uh, assistive communication for patients has been discussed. But as this is such a small target group, this didn't get much attention. But the ethics for a more widespread usage of BCIs definitely has been more discussed in recent years. I, I think this is particularly fueled by legislators who don't want to be overwhelmed by new technology again. They are as aware as we are, this is not a problem yet, but they don't want to be overwhelmed again. Mm -hmm. So they know this might come up in 10, 15 years, but they want to be prepared. I mean, it's probably still not as much discussed as it should be um, but there is definitely things uh, coming up. I think BCI will not face um, 
widespread use very soon, but measuring brain data as an additional information channel, especially in virtual environments, that might come faster than expected. Because you're, if you're putting on a headset anyway, uh, augmenting that with a couple of sensors isn't a big deal. And um, even tiny bit of information there might, might be useful. So, yeah, maybe we what, see it. What, what, are, what are, I don't want to say dangers, but what are the, the yeah, implications or consequences of being able to read brain data? Um, so I think this again is the, in my opinion the largest uh, risk is not the overt control that is being used but the largest risk is getting this tiny bit of extra information that likely the user is not aware of themselves if they are aware of it themselves they will act in some certain way and this will be easier to decode but this tiny tiny reaction when some ad is shown, for example, that they're not even aware of themselves, this might be harnessed when measured at a global scale, when thousands and thousands of users are using this. Yeah, um, and then this of course can be used against you. If you react in a certain way whenever a, a boat is shown, then of course in the future all of your ads will contain more of that and uh, you will be exploited more commercial behavior. So, so, so given what you just said, there, there, is, there is a movement, um, I don't know if you've heard of it, neuro rights. Um, so really this is specific human rights dedicated to the human brain. Mm -hmm. Because of these upcoming technologies, and I think in particular brain-computer interfaces, there is, there is this worry that, you know, things such as our, our um, uh, privacy, but our mental integrity will also be uh, at stake here. Do you, do you endorse such a such a movement that really is before the technology is out there is trying to work towards uh, protecting these 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 aspects that we that we otherwise never talked about you know if we look at uh, the declaration of Helsinki where they really focus on you know general human rights there hasn't been so much a focus on the human brain and mental integrity and uh, uh, you know the brain privacy. Do, do you see a need for such, uh, um, for such uh, uh, discussions and, I mean, of course, discussions are important, but do you see a need for such a movement that is working towards implementing legislation uh, for the protection of, of, um, of these aspects uh, that I mentioned? I think this is extremely important. I think this needs to be tackled before it becomes a problem, otherwise the tech will just run away from us. But on this on, at the same time, I think it's important to not uh, jump uh, aboard the, uh, um, the band train just because it's an exciting topic, over-regulating it. So personally, I, f for example, feel that VR technology is a much, much larger risk um, than the neurotech added on top of the VR. Mm -hmm. and, but because neurotech sounds so exciting, um, there's much more people... Uh, talking about it and wanting to regulate it then um, then for example VR which I think is much more dangerous agreed because I, I think it also I, I, I think of VR personally more as a neurotechnology than just a you know 
technology because it is it is also affecting the way you perceive the world fair point yeah. and that's that's the function of our brain right to to do so 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 in many ways i i do agree i think vr and, and virtual reality is is um is 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 also an, an important technology to 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 really look look deeper into but but so you are more and i think this is this is a lot of the the, the the scientific community really being afraid that you know we are as you say jumping too fast into regulation uh, because you believe do you believe that this might impact your work and and maybe maybe uh, um halt its progression if, if if regulations would be implemented no 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 um no i think that's fine and i think regulations should be implemented um but i think this, that there is a problem existing, but if you have thousands of thousands of people talking about it because it's an exciting topic, and then the same people not worrying about the far greater dangers, I, I think this is just detrimental. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what are some of the misconceptions about BCI that you've that you've come across, whether you know on the media, social media, um, but even in, 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 in your own laboratory? Um, so especially in interviews with the media, one of the largest misconceptions is always that we're decoding thought. And BCIs are really not decoding thought. They're most of the time decoding movement intention um, or, or some really voluntary attempts to control something. And they're not decoding what we think um, to ourselves we're contemplating. This is actually a process we know very, very little about and have absolutely no success in decoding whatsoever. So I think this is a, a huge miscon misconception. If you read about BCI technology, 50% of the headlines are something decoding thought, uh, decoding your inner wishes or something, and this is not what BCI does. And, and, and if you would have a word of advice for, I mean, if we could even influence that, but if you would have a word of advice for journalists and, and, and media outlets, what, what would, as a scientist, what would you advise them to avoid? Because, I mean, of course, this could, I don't know if, if you agree with me, could add on to the hype and the false hopes and false, false promises and even, you know, exaggerated uh, uh, um, um, uh, promises that are possibly not even true and will not be true. Um, but but what would you what would you say what 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 would you uh, uh, prefer to see when you are you know as a scientist uh, trying to 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 dig in deeper into brain computer interfaces? I think I mean of course I think this is still exciting technology, but it's important to be critical to really ask what are the patients doing to control this? How well does it functioning? And who is it functioning with? Is it with healthy participants or? with regards to the technology healthy. Um, so, and I think this can still be exciting and the news, uh, the headline can still be exciting even if it's not thought decoding. So ask very critically. Uh, very recently, and I've, I've learned a lot over the years, so now whenever I'm interviewed, I ask for the quotes beforehand so I can double check them. And the last article, uh, I, I got back and I double checked it and every quote was fine and I was happy. And then when the article appeared, I thought I saw that they didn't give me the headline for checking, and that was where the thought decoding was in there again. 
So it's really important to double check everything. And and you know, I, I wonder. I I'm I'm not sure about what what article you're talking about, but um, did you ever mention in your in your uh, um, in your interview thought the decoding, or is that something that they just you know implicitly kind of deduced from the conversation that they had with you? In fact, journalists at the end always ask, so do you have anything to add? And at the end, I always say, it's super important to note we're not decoding thought, we're <laughs> decoding the attempt to speak or imagine speech processes when they think of themselves moving their lips. So I'm trying to make it super clear. So e either they don't want to or they don't listen to that last <laughs> part, but I'm, I'm giving my very best to stop this from yeah. happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's a very, very good point. Um, we talked a bit about the applications of BCI, and I think we focused just very generally on, you know, one being for patients and another application more generally being, of course, for non-patients or the general public. But, of course, if we dig a bit deeper, we can talk about Uh, um, the 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 uh, gaming industry, right? There is a lot of interest, a lot of startups coming up that are focusing on introducing uh, brain computer interfaces together with video games and to hide, kind of have this 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 new way of experiencing um, gaming. But of course, we can talk of more uh, serious uh, uh, applications, and that is uh, the military uses, right? We talk about dual use here, where uh, you have a, a, a technology that is initially intended to be used for patients and to help patients, but it can also be used uh, for, for, for maleficent purposes, and that is, in that case, uh, military purposes. Um, do, you need, do you think we need to be careful about how we are um, you know, introducing, because it's already there. I mean, there's nothing we can stop it. These applications are already being developed for these different fields and different uh, um, 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 applications. Do you think we need to be careful, and, and, and what are your thoughts on that? Dual use is always a super difficult topic, because you can't hold back development because it might be misused, because uh, almost anything you develop could be beneficial in the military, right? If I develop this super good new way of clicking on the screen, this of course would also be hugely beneficial in the military. Um, from uh, DARPA is one of the largest funders of BCI technology in the States. Um, from what I've seen, nothing is worrisome in the usage for military. I mean, yes, they, it is new input. It allows them to sort pictures, for example, faster than before. Do you still have the same thoughts if artificial intelligence would be incorporated within BCI for military uses? Is that, is that still, would that still be your answer? I'm, I'm extremely worried if um, artificial intelligence or detection algorithms are used by themselves in military applications. Hugely problematic. If we have drones that start making decisions themselves, I think This is an ethical threat with, without borders. I don't see currently where BCIs make this threat more difficult. Okay. Okay. And, and, and if we talk about uh, the gaming industry? 
In the gaming industry, we get back again to this uh, exploitation of your own processes. I mean, first it might sound not too dangerous. Gabe Newell has uh, had the idea, for example, of playing horror games, and the horror elements come when you're most relaxed. So they're even more shocking. So this sounds benign, of course. It's not everybody's cup of tea, of course, and um, I'm not a big, big gamer myself, but I, I'm sure people would enjoy this. But then this very easily is um, misused for commercial exploitation, for example. But this brings us back to the same points we had in VR environments. So I yeah. think these are very closely interlinked. Yeah. And if, if we want to, you know, talk more generally about... I think we touched upon them, but you know, maybe give a give a give a bit of a summary. What do you consider a a BCI hype? Um, a BCI hype uh, for me is when promises are made that currently don't have any indications of being realistic in the foreseeable future. For example, when Elon Musk says we will upload skills or memories. There is, there is one study from 2018 that hasn't been replicated where they could close loop improve an NBAC task, so remembering up to three items with targeted stimulation. Okay. So this is an absolute highest level of memory improvement that has ever been reported. Um, and the community is unsure about how uh, reliable that result was to start with. But up, uploading complete complex memories is nothing we even have indication that it could work at this moment. Yeah. And, and if, we want, if, if you would mention one BCI myth, what would that be? Um, I think I would go with what I mentioned earlier. Um, that BCIs are attempting to decode thought, because this is really not the idea. But having said that, there are BCIs in current use with patients. So here in the Netherlands, we have two patients suffering from ALS implanted with BCIs uh, for, spelling the, uh, for spelling purposes. So um, they imagine movement and then can select um, letters through, through that. So the BCI gives them basically um, a click. A click mm -hmm. interface. So the speller moves through letters and then they can click when they want to choose. Um, that is work by Nick Ramsey's group in Utrecht. Okay, nice. And what do you consider a BCI fact? Oh, okay. I was a bit early then. This would be my this fact. This would be your fact. Okay. That BCIs okay. are currently in use. So we have the implanted one um, by Nick Ramsey. We have the BrainGate group in the States who have paralyzed patients control robotic arms or handwrite through, imagine handwriting. And we have a few patients using non-invasive BCIs for spelling purposes. So, so if you would, in one sentence, say, what can BCIs do? Like, what can they actually do currently? They can, with invasive sensors, control robotic arms in paralyzed patients, and they can non-invasively allow people to spell out messages. Okay, I think I think that's clear. There's no way you can take out any other information from that. That is what BCIs currently can 
do. Um, so you mentioned to me when, when, when we were uh, discussing, you know, to have that meeting that at some point you were involved in the uh, in, in a work group uh, at the United Nations uh, work group for ethics of technology. Can you describe to, to our audience a bit, you know, what was that like for you to be there? What are some of the, the, the discussions that are being uh, held uh, at the UN level? So I was invited as an expert on the technology, so to give perspective on what is realistic, what is not so realistic, what I consider um, the timeline, of course, for some of these developments. Um, but there were a lot of clever people who thought about the ethics a lot more than I have and um, who pointed out um, some of the dangers we spoke about today that quite frankly, hadn't crossed my mind uh, up to that point. So it, it was very, very interesting to me, and I hope I also could um, give some helpful insights. Okay, okay, that's, that's, that's good to hear, and I think it's nice to know that at the UN level, which is really more of an international level, that these things are being discussed and that, you know, you have several experts from several fields being ethics or, or, or the technology itself that are being really... Uh, summoned upon to, to, to discuss these. Um, Just last week, after the first discussion, they developed a large questionnaire for the timeline. So they developed, I think, 20, um, 20 scenarios, and the expert had to give their opinion on how realistic the scenario is and what we think the timeline is for that. Okay. Um, and I think it will now further grow. Go on. Okay, that's that's. I think that's also a nice way, right, of of of, um, of involving both both uh, both parties or both fields, um, because so you have the, the 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 ones that are really more trying to to think of those science fiction scenarios because the technology is not there yet, but we have a bit of an idea of what what's going to be there, and then you have you that are kind of fact checking everything and, and, and giving your input on that. That's that's super interesting. Yeah, I think this is super important because some fields of philosophy have really drifted away from from the facts mm -hmm. and the follow up on early 20th century philosophers and following on in in their school of thinking, even we know, even though we now know that things they imagine are just not that way. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's good to have mutual benefit by talking to each other. Yeah, yeah, very, very happy to, to hear that this is, this is happening. So um, with that, I want to thank you very, very much, uh, uh, Christian, for, for, for having this really interesting discussion. I, I also learned things that I, I wasn't aware of before, uh, but also to also see that as a researcher, you are really aware and acknowledge the importance of, of the ethics of, of this particular technology, the, the brain-computer interface technology. Um, so, so with that, I want to thank you. Um, I want to thank our audience um, and um, see you next time. Pleasure, thank you.